I want to begin today with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Protestant pastor who many of you know was part of the resistance to Adolf Hitler and who was ultimately hanged in a concentration camp only hours before it was liberated by the Allied troops. He wrote a book whose title is the title of this sermon, The Cost of Discipleship. So I wanted to share this quote and allow it to rest with all of us as we deal with what is admittedly a difficult text. Bonhoeffer wrote, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering, which every person must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying, that dying of the old person, which is the result of their encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves with Christ, to Christ, in union with his death. We give our lives to death, give over our lives to death. Thus, he writes, it begins. The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us. At the beginning of our communion with Christ, it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. Now, this is one of those texts, the scripture text we read this morning, that after it's read aloud in the sanctuary, you can almost hear the questioning tone in the call and response that always follows the reading, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's only because we're all good Presbyterians that we say the words after the reading, no matter what the reading says. Carry your cross. Hate father and mother, brother and sister, your own life. No one who has wealth can be Christ's disciple. Anytime somebody tells you that they are a biblical literalist, that they believe that the Bible is true, every single word of it down to the jot and tittle, share this text with them and watch how quickly that literalism fades away. Jesus invites us to calculate the cost. Am I the only one in this room who finds it rather high? And when I saw that this text was assigned for Labor Day weekend, I thought, that's just not fair to all of you. The attendance will be down, and the ones who choose to get up and forego the lake or the pool or the brunch downtown will hear this text, this demanding 
call to follow. I, I feel for you. Truly, I do. I invite you to send this link, the link to the sermon, to all of your vacationing or brunching friends and family so that they too can share in the joy this Sunday. Maybe introduce it with the paraphrase in your email, unless you forsake boat and bed and beach and follow me. It's a tough text. All the more so for all of you faithful weekend, holiday weekend worshipers. And yet, perhaps these words contain more grace for us than they initially seem. Maybe if we do what we are always called to do with biblical texts, whether easier or more difficult, if we open our hearts and dwell with these words, humble ourselves before the call that is issued in the text, maybe these words will reveal a discipleship, a sacrifice, a following that does not diminish our lives, but gives our lives the quality that Jesus will call elsewhere abundant. I have come that they may have life, and have it abundantly, Jesus says. Jesus calls us here to a kind of attentiveness to the presence and power of God that puts all other allegiances and loyalties in a secondary place. Not an unimportant place, but a secondary place. A place where our loyalty to Christ redefines all of our other loyalties. And the context for this reading is clear, but it's easily missed. There are large, enthusiastic crowds that are following after Jesus, but not necessarily following him. They have no idea, these large crowds, that Jesus is on the way to the cross. They have no idea what following him will cost them ultimately. They have no idea what he's really asking of them. Fred Craddock puts it well. What does Jesus have to say to hasty volunteers, he asks. In some, his word is, think about what you are doing and decide if you are willing to stay with me all the way. Pay attention to what is going on. Pay attention to what God is doing in me and in you, and then count the cost. Count the cost. We always get hung up, or at least I do, on that word hate. It's only in Luke's gospel that it's used in quite this way. If you will not hate your father and mother, hate your siblings, etc. But when you look at that Greek word that gets translated hate, it, it doesn't have the same connotation. The word hate itself did not have the same connotation in ancient uh, first century Judaism and in the Greek-speaking world that it does for us today. In those days, to say that something was hated, it really had the connotation of love 
less. Love less. It doesn't have that emotional uh, meaning that we ascribe to the word today. Same thing, by the way, with the word love in Greek. The word hate literally means to reprioritize even your most basic relationships to family, to wealth, even to your own life in light of the call to follow Christ. I think Diana Butler Bass helps us understand it even more. She argues that Christianity in the 21st century really needs to move beyond believing, that word believing, in the way we tend to think about that word. Our practice has been to consider faith or belief as an intellectual assent to certain doctrines. And it's an attitude primarily of the mind. She invites us to move to a deeper meaning of the word faith, which comes from the Latin fide, which means literally to give one's heart to. She suggests a a new word. Maybe believe is not the right word. Maybe what we're being called to do is to beloved. Is this not what Jesus asks those who are clamoring after him? The large crowds that think we learn later he's leading a political revolution or a parade. He turns to them and says, in essence, I'm not looking for your votes. I'm not looking for your endorsements. I'm not looking for your money. I'm not even looking for your time and your good deeds. All of these I'm not looking for. What I want is something even more radical than all of these gifts. The one thing that puts all these other gifts in their proper perspective. I'm looking for you. I want your heart. Beloved. Michael Gerson wrote recently and powerfully about the radicality of Christ's call. He notes that Jesus proclaimed the arrival of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, which demanded first loyalty in the lives of believers. Of course, as it almost always is, the kingdom he proclaimed was immediately misunderstood as a political kingdom. And it was this misunderstanding that vexed even his closest disciples. It was this misunderstanding that would cause him to be crucified on a Roman cross as an enemy of the state. Gerson writes this, Jesus rejected the role of a political Messiah. In the present age, he insisted the kingdom of God would not be the product of Jewish nationalism. It would not arrive through militancy and violence, tactics that would contribute only to a cycle of suffering. Instead, God's kingdom would grow silently, soul by soul, among you and within you, 
across every barrier of nation or race in acts of justice, peacemaking, love, inclusion, meekness, humility, and gentleness. Won't you hear a few more words from a few more theologians who were writing all at the same time in the 1930s in Germany, which was at that time the seat of Christianity in the modern world in many ways, at least its intellectual seat. Paul Tillich, who would escape from Germany and end up teaching at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century wrote this, the cross is the symbol of a gift before it is the symbol of a demand. Karl Barth, whom you've heard me quote many times from this pulpit, another great theologian, a contemporary of Tillich's, another resistor to Nazism, wrote this, God has given us this special light, the cross, to bear. A gift, a special light, this cross. What does it mean that these German theologians, Bonhoeffer, Barth, and Tillich, three giants of 20th century theology, all wrote at the same time, at a time when Hitler and the Nazi party were trying at the point of guns and tanks to claim the loyalties of the world. And the one image they lifted time and again was the cross. The cross at the center of it all. The revelation of the power of God in the world and the cost of discipleship. To carry the cross, then, is to take up this light, to create space within ourselves for it to shine into every dark corner, to shine into every area of our lives until we are transformed by this grace into disciples. And the only way we can do this, the only way we can do it is not by force of will, but by force of prayer. The only way this happens is by the same grace that took Jesus to the cross. There's a reason that you are in this sanctuary surrounded by crosses. There's a reason why this church throughout its history has actively resisted the, the trend of removing crosses from, its, from sanctuaries and courtyards. The cross remains the active and living center of what it means to follow Christ in this or any other age. Some years ago, Nikos Kazantzakis wrote a book that many of you will remember of a certain age at least called The Last Temptation of Christ. In his novel, Kazantzakis basically said that when Jesus got into Jerusalem and the noose was tightening around his neck and there was no way out and death was in front of him, he thought, why don't I just go back to Nazareth? Mary 
have a family, take up carpentry again, and get out of this. Nobody seems to care anyway. Cousin Zacchaeus says that is the, was the last temptation that Christ endured in his life. In this fictional account, he imagines it to be so. And in the face of it, Christ goes on to the cross. I was thinking about this book again for the first time in a long time, preparing this sermon, wondering if maybe Cousin Zacchaeus was helping us think not so much about Christ's temptations, but our own. The temptation to forego the cross for what Bonhoeffer called famously cheap grace. When we are tempted by all of those voices calling us to allegiance, politics of any stripe, ideologies of left, right, and center, familial, blood and soil, all of those different ways we are tempted to replace the cross with something else. When we hear those voices, we are held close by the one who gives us all we really need to withstand temptation and to take up our cross that we may die to that temptation. And what we find when we lift the cross up onto our shoulders is that wide open space of God's grace. And we hear that voice again that we hear so often from the table, come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you life. May it be so. Amen.